Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, members and attendees of Monarch and Shiloh congregations and all visitors here with us, I'm sure we've all noticed the smoky conditions over the past few days. What a difference there was between Monday and Tuesday. Monday we enjoyed, didn't we? We enjoyed the brightness and the glory of the sun in the sky and, and on Tuesday morning it was so different. The smoke from the wildfires blew in and and that brightness and that glory just almost completely disappeared. The smoke came between us and the sun, blocking its glory, blocking its, its brightness. You know, sometimes a similar thing can happen in relation to us and Christ. When Christ ascended, he ascended to a position of glory. In the, account of in the account of Christ's ascension in Acts 1, we're told very clearly and repeatedly where Christ went when he ascended. Children, you know, you know where Christ went. What did, what did it say in Acts 1 when we read it earlier? We're told he was taken up, he went into heaven, into heaven. The place where, where his father especially dwells. That's where Christ went, into heaven. And and other passages in Scripture, they they tell us where he went in heaven, don't they? They tell us that when he went into heaven, he went to his Father. And he sat down at his Father's right hand. That means that when Christ ascended, he was exalted to the position of highest honor, of highest glory. Paul puts it, This way in 1 Timothy 3, he says that God, who was manifest in the flesh, speaking of Christ, was received up into glory. So that's what the scriptures say. But sometimes his glory is hard to see, hard to realize, hard hard to be mindful of. I mean, that's, that's true physically, of course, we cannot see Christ, we cannot see him in heaven. He's out of our physical sight, just like it says in Acts 1 verse 9. When the disciples beheld him going up, it says a cloud received him out of their sight. They they couldn't see him with their physical eyes. And neither can we. And spiritually too, by nature though, we don't see his glory. By nature, left to ourselves, we, we don't see, we can't see the glory and the beauty of Christ in heaven. There's too much Too much smoke, as it were. The smoke of our sin, the smoke of our depravity, the smoke of our corruption as sinners. Apart from God's sovereign grace, we live like people, the people Paul describes in Ephesians 4, who walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. That's that's us by nature, left to ourselves. And, and maybe, that's, maybe that's you this evening. But even if it's not, even if God has shone in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that you've been brought to repentance and faith in Christ, even if that has happened to you, it can still be hard to see. It can still be hard to recognize. It can still be hard to be mindful of the glory of the ascended Christ. The smoke of daily life. The smoke of our remaining sin and corruption. The smoke of temptation. The smoke of suffering. The smoke of the world can get in the way so that we lose our sight. We lose our sense of the glory of the ascended Christ. 
instead of worshiping Him. We worry. Instead of reverencing Him, we treat Him casually. Instead of trusting in Him and submitting to Him, we try to live without Him. We live unmindful, unmindful of His glory. With the Spirit's blessing, Psalm 24, our text for this evening, can clear away the smoke. That's my prayer as we study this psalm. It's a psalm of David that really highlights for us the glory of the Lord. It's a psalm that that urges us to worship the Lord in humble submission and faith. But maybe you say, well, what does that have to do with the ascension of Christ? Well, for one thing, we need to remember who Christ is. He is the Lord, isn't he? Christ is the Lord. He is God, the Son, made flesh. And for another thing, the end of the psalm, which we sang from Psalter 58, verses 7 to 10 of Psalm 24, they speak of the Lord. They speak of the Lord coming into a city, possibly in the setting in which it was originally written, possibly referring to Jerusalem. It speaks of him coming as the king of glory, as a victorious conqueror over his enemies and the enemies of his people. And so the, the, the occasion for this psalm could be some sort of mighty victory that the Lord has won for his people. Or, or something it could be when, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. But, but either way, whichever way you want to look at it, Christ's ascension is exactly this kind of occasion. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended, he went into heaven. He went into the heavenly Jerusalem, as it were. And he entered, he entered as the king of glory, as a victorious conqueror over sin and death and Satan, his own enemies and the enemies of his people. Through his life, through his death, through his suffering, he had conquered. And the ascension proclaims he has been victorious. And so Psalm 24 then it's like a window it's like a window into heaven that gives us a clear view of the glory of the ascended Christ so that we would worship him so that we would worship him in humble submission and faith the glory of the ascended Christ that's our theme that's what it's ultimately about it's about the glory first of all of his sovereignty secondly the glory of his holiness And thirdly, the glory of his power. The psalm begins by calling our attention to the glory of his sovereignty. In verses 1 and 2, David writes these words. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. What a declaration this is concerning the Lord, concerning the ascended Christ. How glorious he is in sovereignty. For one thing, his sovereignty is universal. It's universal. He, the Lord, the ascended Christ, owns and rules everything. Verse 1 makes that point very clearly, doesn't it? What is the Lord's? What belongs to the ascended Christ? What does he own? What does he rule over? The earth. Yes, the earth, but not just the earth, also its fullness, also its, everything in it. 
The, the mountains, the rocks, the rivers, the lakes, the, the, the oceans, the seas, the, the, the fields, the animals, the birds, the bugs, the, the molecules, the atoms, everything. The Lord, the ascended Christ, owns and rules all of it. Yes, also all people, the worlds, and they that dwell therein are His. Everything and everyone is His. He made all of it. He founded it, verse 2 says. He founded the earth, the world, and everything in it. He laid its foundation upon the seas. And he cares for it. He continues to maintain it. He established it upon the floods. In the Hebrew, you could translate that verb in the present tense. He he establishes it. It's an ongoing thing. He, He preserves and sustains it. He continues to maintain his creation. It's a picture, verses 1 and 2, it's a picture of total control, isn't it? Total control. That's what the ascended Christ has. He has total control. He has worldwide universal sovereignty and dominion. In one sense, he's always had that, of course, even before his ascension. All things were made by him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Because he is God. He is the Lord. He's always had this universal sovereignty. But you see, when he became man, when he became man, when he was made flesh, when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and and born of the Virgin Mary, he humbled himself. He veiled his glory, as it were. Why? In In order to do battle. In order to do battle with his enemy, Satan. That serpent of old, the one who opposed God, the one who wanted to rob God of his glory, the one who wanted to be the ruler of this world. But his ascension congregation, his ascension confirms and declares that Christ won the battle. He crushed Satan's head. And so Christ entering into heaven declares for us once and for all that he rules. The ascended Christ reigns not just over the church, not just over a piece of the world, but over all of it. He didn't lose a speck of dirt to Satan. A speck. That's what Paul speaks of the ascended Christ at the end of Ephesians 1. He speaks of the ascended Christ being set at God's own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. God has put all things under his feet, Paul writes, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. He's really saying, isn't he? He's really saying what these first two verses of Psalm 24 are saying. The sovereignty of the ascended Christ is universal. He owns and rules everything. God has given all things into the hands of his Son. His sovereignty is universal and it's absolute. It's absolute. The Hebrew actually emphasizes that. It puts the stress on the Lord. So we shouldn't read it so much like like this. We shouldn't read it like this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We should read it like this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's the same thing in verse 2. The stress is on He. 
For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. The point is not simply you see that the Lord, the ascended Christ, owns and rules the whole world. The point is that he alone owns and rules it. His sovereignty is absolute. But what does this all mean for us? Listening here tonight. What is the glory of Christ's sovereignty? What does the universal, absolute sovereignty of Christ, of the ascended Christ, mean for you and for me? What does it mean for one that we should bow? We should bow in submission to him. Have you done that? Have you bowed your knees to Christ? Have you prostrated yourself before him? Have you humbled yourself before him in repentance from sin and in faith toward him? Have you? And are you living? Are you living in humble submission to him now? The universal, absolute sovereignty of the ascended Christ urges you, it urges us all to submit to him. We cannot escape. We cannot escape Christ's dominion because it's all his. The whole world is his and all who dwell therein, and that also includes you, and you, and me. And that means we owe God. We owe God submission. You can refuse, but it will cost you. It will cost you your life. It will land you in hell if you die that way. That's what God's word declares. We don't like to hear that, but that's what God's word declares. The glory of Christ's sovereignty urges us, urges us all, all, all to submit to him, to come to him with all of our struggles, confessing our sins, and to put our trust in him. And all who do that, the Bible says, will be blessed. They'll be blessed forever. Well, then let's humbly submit to this ascended Christ congregation. That's what the glory of his sovereignty is urging us to do. But it also encourages us. It also encourages God's people, those who have submitted and are looking to Christ in faith. It encourages us to be still. To be still. And know, and know that he is It encourages us to trust him in our lives, in all the difficulties, in all the trials, in all of our struggles, in all of our suffering. Because why? Because he is universally and absolutely sovereign over it all. And when we are his, when we belong to him by faith, that is a tremendously, wonderfully rich, rich, rich comfort. Because it means that everything, everything, even the hard things, even the hard things, the painful things, the things we don't understand and maybe will never understand this side of heaven, everything happens according to his will. The will of the ascended Christ, the will of the one who suffered and bled and died for us. Even the hard things. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. He is universally and absolutely sovereign. The world is never outside of his, the control of the ascended Christ. What a great encouragement that is when we are his. And we belong to the ascended Christ by faith because it means, it means that we are 
safe. We are safe. Even when the world seems out of control, even when your life seems out of control, it means we are safe. It means that nothing, nothing that happens in this world, nothing that happens to us will or even can wrench us out of his loving, nail-pierced hands. Nothing. Nothing will. Nothing can keep him from finishing the work that he has begun. Praise God for that. Nothing can keep him from bringing us to himself to behold his glory, the glory of the ascended Christ. Well, then let's worship him. Let's worship him in humble submission and faith. That's what the psalm is teaching us. Not only by showing the glory of his sovereignty, but also by showing us the glory of his holiness. And we see this especially in verses 3 to 6. Verse 3 begins with a question. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? So who's going to be, who, who is God going to accept to worship him? And this question then turns our attention from the, his, his, the sovereignty of the Lord to, to, to his holiness, to the holiness of the ascended Christ. And the answer to the question, congregation, shows us, shows us just how holy he is. The one who can ascend into the Lord's hill, the one who can stand in his holy place, the one whom he will accept is he that has clean hands, verse 4, and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Do you see something of the holiness of the Lord, of the ascended Christ here? That's what this is about. It's, it's telling us, these verses are telling us the Lord, the ascended Christ, is perfectly holy. How do we know? Because the one who can worship him the one whom he accepts must be thoroughly holy. He must be outwardly and inwardly holy. He must have clean hands. And he must not have sworn deceitfully. That's a picture of those two things. are a picture of outward holiness. We must not be hypocrites. We must not be liars. There must be outward holiness. Holiness in our actions. Holiness in our words. But, but not only outward holiness. There must be inward holiness too. His heart must be pure. It must be like metal without any impurities, like, like pure gold. That means he must be fully and sincerely devoted to God. He must not be one who has lifted his soul up to, to vanity, to, to an idol. He must not be trusting in an idol. There must be inward and outward holiness for us to be able to worship the Lord Acceptably. He cannot, he will not accept anything less. The ascended Christ is perfectly holy. Dear congregation, don't we need that reminder today? You know, generally speaking, we live in a day where this is hardly mentioned anymore. The perfect holiness of Christ, it's, it's ignored. He's become for so many people, even, even professing Christians, nothing more than our buddy. There's no awe of him. There's no reverence of him. There's no fear of him. There's no concern for holiness in our lives, in life. 
And I'm afraid, congregation, that's not just out there. I'm afraid it's in here. I'm afraid there are people here who go to church, who publicly confess the name of Christ, perhaps, who would call themselves Christians, who think they're going to heaven, but they have no concern for holiness. Are you one of them? Are you living without a concern for holiness? Are you living without caring about God's law? Are you living perhaps even in in willful sin? Thinking, perhaps excusing it by thinking or saying that Christ is okay with it. He's my Savior. He'll forgive me. I'm all good. He ate with publicans and sinners, so it doesn't matter how I live. He'll accept me. Is that you? Is that how you're living? Anyway, you need to hear, you need to heed the warning of this text. The Lord, the ascended Christ, this King of glory whom you claim to know, whom you claim to trust in, is perfectly, supremely, infinitely holy. He's not a buddy who's okay with whatever you do. He's holy. And that means we must worship him with reverence. We must speak of him with reverence. And we must live with reverence. Reverence, we must live holy lives, outwardly and inwardly. If that's not your concern, then shouldn't that make you question whether you are really a Christian? You see, it's only the holy person, the one who is outwardly and inwardly holy, only he, verse 5, shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. But I hear someone saying, what's the use then? I'm not this kind of person. I don't live up to this standard. I try, but I can't. How can I ever be accepted by Christ? Oh, don't think, congregation, don't think that these these verses mean it's hopeless. It's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. It's true, none of us is perfectly holy in ourselves. But here's the thing, God has provided us a way for us to be made holy, to be made clean. He's provided a way for our sins to be cleansed. David, David, the man who wrote this psalm, knew that. And the people who would have sung it in the Old Testament knew that. Because they had the bloody animal sacrifices. Sacrifices that God himself had commanded, had given as a picture of the sacrifice of his son on the cross. It was through those sacrifices, you see, pointing to the sacrifice of Christ that they could be made clean and be made pure and be made acceptable to God. And so also for us, it's by that sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we can be made clean. That our hearts, sinful as they are in themselves, impure as they are in themselves, can be made pure. And so what the psalm is saying is not that it's hopeless. It's not saying we may as well well, all go home and forget about worshiping the Lord. Forget about worshiping and serving the ascended Christ. That's not what this is saying. No, it's saying you need to worship him in dependence on him. His holiness, you see, is not just a perfect holiness. It's a shared holiness. That's how he's a friend of sinners. He shares his holiness. He saves sinners. He makes them clean. And then he makes them holy personally 
as well throughout their life, increasingly so. The message of this, these verses is, is, is don't come then trusting in yourself, but, but come trusting in him and his once-for-all sacrifice for sin that he made on the cross. Those are the people, the people who are clinging to Jesus and to his sacrifice on the cross, who are holding on to it, gripping on to the horns of the altar, as it were. Those are the people who by grace can ascend into the hill of the Lord, the hill of the ascended Christ. Those are the people who can stand in his holy place. Those are the people who by grace shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of their salvation because they are holy, they are connected to Christ, and God sees them in Christ They are holy in Christ. And because they are holy in Christ, they will also become increasingly holy, increasingly like Christ themselves. And that will be their concern. Because when God works in a person, he doesn't just wipe their sins away. He gives a new heart, you see. He makes them a new creation. And the point is then to come depending on Christ. Cast Let us cast ourselves in on Christ. Let us cling to him. Let us be like that generation that verse 6 describes. A generation that seeks the Lord. That seeks the God of our salvation. That seeks Christ. That doesn't rest until we find him. That's the kind of seeking verse 6 is talking about. You know, the reference to Jacob, it's, it's a bit strange and hard to... Hard to understand, it's difficult even in the Hebrew. And our translation says, This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. But in the Hebrew, it just says Jacob. And so it could be that, that it's actually a reference here to Jacob's wrestling with God at Peniel. You remember that story? Maybe some of you children remember that story. How Jacob was wrestling with God and, and God told him to let him go because the dawn was coming. And, and how did Jacob reply? Remember, he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. Maybe that's what this reference to Jacob in Psalm 24, 6 is referring to. It's saying this is is Jacob that seeks him. That kind of seeking. It's referring to his clinging to God. But even if if we can't say that for sure, the, the verse as a whole is certainly calling us to seek God, to seek the Lord, to seek the ascended Christ in that way. In light of his holiness, we need him. We need him. The glory of his holiness calls us to worship him in humble submission and determined faith in him. But there's one more aspect of the glory of the ascended Christ that our psalm highlights, and it's, it's really the climax. It shows us, congregation, it shows us the glory of his power. In verses 7 to 10, the psalmist's focus on the Lord's holiness turns to his power. Verse 7 says this, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, Even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. You can almost picture the scene. It's a picture of a mighty and a glorious king coming into his own city. But it's not just any king. This is the Lord. And as we mentioned in the beginning, 
The greatest fulfillment of this picture is the ascension of Christ into heaven. After his, he had conquered sin and death and Satan. And, and so what we see here, congregation, what these verses highlight for us is the glory of the power of the ascended Christ. And what a power it is. It's an almighty power. You see this in the descriptions given of the ascended Christ. In the, in the descriptions of this King of glory. He is the Lord strong and mighty. He is the Lord mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. That name often highlights, underscores for us the, the omnipotence, the almighty power of God. That's the power of the ascended Christ. Is that not both a warning and such an encouragement to humbly submit to him? On the one hand, it's, it's a warning. It's a warning to those who oppose Christ, who resist Him, who reject Him, who think they can get away with it. Don't think for a moment that you're going to win. You're up against almighty power. You cannot and will not win. The devil didn't win. You will not win either. It's a warning. Don't resist Him. Don't resist Him, but receive Him. But it's also an encouragement because maybe you are here tonight. Maybe you are here tonight and you think it's impossible. It's impossible for me to be saved. It's imp or it's impossible for me to get the victory over this particular sin. No, it's not impossible because Christ, the ascended Christ, is almighty in power. He is mighty to save. He is able to save to the uttermost, Hebrews 7.25 says, those that come unto God by him. His power, his power is Almighty. And it is, it is a victorious, saving power. He's the Lord. You know, that name's important. It's God's, not only his personal name that reveals his, his self-sufficiency, but it's also the name that reveals his saving purposes. It's the name God told, God told Moses to give to the Israelites when he was calling Moses to save his people from their slavery to Egypt. I am the Lord. Think of how the Ten Commandments begins. I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord who is faithful to his covenant promises. It's a saving power, a victorious saving power. That's the power of the ascended Christ. So what are we to do? We are to worship him in humble submission and faith. We are to cast ourselves on him. We are to come to him with all of our weakness, all of our doubts, all of our struggles, all of our unbelief, and say, Lord, save me. I believe. Help my unbelief. And he will save. He will help because he is the Lord. He is the Lord of almighty power and a victorious saving power. What an encouragement, what an encouragement that is. What an encouragement that is also to those of us who belong to him. Also in the midst of our battles against sin. Life is a battle. And sometimes the battle's fierce. Sometimes the battlefield is, is covered in smoke as it were. The ascended Christ is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So don't grow weary. 
in your battle against sin, in your battle against temptation, in your fight against the forces of Satan. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in seeking to preach and to spread the gospel because God, the ascended Christ, has ascended into heaven as the almighty, the glorious Savior King, the King of glory. So let's worship him. Let's worship him in humble submission and faith. Let's live mindful of his glory, the glory of his sovereignty, the glory of his holiness, and the glory of his power. When the smoke of life and of sin and of sorrow and everything else makes it hard to see the glory of the ascended Christ, then read and meditate on Psalm 24. And one day, one day, beloved, the smoke will be gone forever. Because what did the angels tell the disciples? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He shall come, he shall return, and we shall behold his glory. Are you ready for him? Amen.